As we move on in this sermon series that I've titled The Call from Above, Living the Sermon, I think we need to take pause for a minute to remember that Matthew emphasizes that this incident took place on the mountain. And for his hearers, his readers, that would have only meant one thing. Mount Sinai. Now, it didn't take place at Mount Sinai, but that's what they would have heard. The mountain uh, where God gave the law. And he goes on to point out by telling us that Jesus even assumed the posture of a teacher, a teacher of the law. It says he went up on the mountain and when he had sat down. Not like now where you all are sitting down and I'm standing up. Maybe we ought to try that one Sunday. I'll sit down and all of you can stand up for my whole message. I don't think it'll work, will it? He also said, he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, Matthew's not being redundant. Opened his mouth is a Semitic idiom which adds a note of solemnity of seriousness, of earnestness to the beginning of this public address. And as Jesus began, the first words that he spoke were a series of statements, what we have come to know as the Beatitudes. One of my mentors, uh, when I was doing my first graduate work down at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, was Glenn Stassen. Uh, the son of Harold Stassen, who ran for president many times, was a governor, uh, I think Minnesota, uh, but I could be wrong on that. But anyway, uh, one of the best commentaries that I have read on the Sermon on the Mount is his book titled, Living the Sermon on the Mount, A Practical Hope for Grace and Deliverance. Uh, in fact, this is where I got the idea for my title of this sermon series, Living the Sermon. And uh, one of the things that Glenn points out is that if we're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount, and especially if we're going to understand the Beatitudes, then we need to realize that there are parallels with Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 11. Let me read just the first four verses from that passage. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. 
Did you hear the emphasis on good news to the poor? And granting comfort to those who mourn? As well as the idea of being oaks of righteousness. All of those are there in the ideas of the Beatitudes. Uh, as well as the whole idea of God showing mercy, the merciful. By the way, this is the same passage in Luke 4 that Jesus reads from in the synagogue in Nazareth when he gives his first address there and uh, where Jesus claims to be the Messiah and the suffering servant. Isaiah 61. Again, you cannot understand the New Testament without looking back and reading and being aware of the Old Testament. So Jesus begins this message by saying, we're flourishing, we're blessed. We should be filled with joy because God is not distant and absent. No, we experience God's reign and presence in our midst. And we'll experience it even more when we are poor in spirit, willing to mourn, practicing humility, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and pure in heart, even in the midst of persecution. And then Matthew notes how Jesus emphasizes how we're to be different. We're to be salty. We're to be lights in darkness. The passage Mary Jane chose says our call to worship today. God is not distant. God is not absent. And for those who feel like God is distant and absent, it's not God's fault. It's our fault for not making ourselves more available to God. We need to understand that in order for us to be the Christians we need to be, as my friend Glenn Stassen points out, we're to promote and maintain our distinction from the world's greedy, uncaring, self-centeredness, exclusionism, unfaithfulness, and violence. We've got to be different. I shared with a family down the street here, and I shared it again at the funeral. Ernie was 87 years old. The Bible, Psalms 90, says we're granted how many years? 70. 80 if by reason of strength. 87 was seven more than even what we're given by reason of strength. And I shared again with the family that there are a lot of things worse than death. A lot of things. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know why I say that because I try to be honest all the time. You ever hear catch yourself saying something stupid like that? <laughs> but, first of all, I'm not afraid to die. I'm ready for death. My son even brought that up this week when we were eating with him. But I would not do well if I found out after something happened that I woke up and I was a quadriplegic. 
I wouldn't do it. I can't even stand the idea of retiring. I would drive my wife crazy if I retired. She'd be trying to find somewhere for me to go and something to do. We need to understand that what the world promotes is often, in fact most often, not what the Bible teaches. That's why I enjoyed singing that song, This World is Not My Home, I'm Just a Passing Through. I guess maybe sometimes I'm not afraid enough. I kidded with Rich yesterday and I said, you know, right now would be the time I would want to go to the Holy Land because I'm greedy and probably things are really cheap. (laughs) Where are we at in our lives? You see, the immediate context for our text today is Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This passage must be one of our main guides for understanding the New Testament, as well as how to determine the focus and the meaning of what follows. Jesus said, I didn't come to annul. I came to fulfill I came, didn't come to abolish them, meaning the law and the prophets. Now in Jewish terms, any attempt to abolish or annul the law could only have been viewed with horror. The law defined their identity. The law was clearly central in all streams of Jewish faith. And the reading of the law had primacy even in the synagogue. In fact, go back to Luke 4, when Jesus reads that passage from Isaiah, He says, this passage is being fulfilled in your midst right now. And if we're going to understand the Beatitudes, we need to understand them also as statements that regulate our life and practice, as statements that define what it means to be a true Christian and what we should be experiencing and how we should be living. That's what Jesus is doing in this inaugural sermon. And in Matthew 5, 21-48, He's going to be giving us six teachings that realistically diagnose the vicious cycles, the repressed anger, the broken relationships, the isolation, even the violence in which we're stuck because of our capacity to self-defeating habits, the ways of domination. And the first of the six that we're going to look at this morning deals with murder and anger. So let me begin with a question. You realize, don't you, that Jesus gave no command not to be angry. I've heard people say, well, Jesus said, while the Old Testament said you shall not kill, I say you shouldn't even be angry. That's not what it says. That's not what He teaches. 
And yet I hear that all the time. Why? Well, it's either because we're listening to the wrong teachers, or we don't read the Bible carefully, or both. Rather than commanding us not to be angry, the Bible actually teaches us what to do with how to handle our anger. And one thing we do know is that giving into and continuing to live in anger shows up. It shows up in ulcers, heart attacks, bitterness, sometimes physical abuse, and yes, even murder. But before we go to what Jesus said in the sermon, let's look at just one example from Paul. Notice what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry. It's actually a command. It's an imperative. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We try to practice that in our home and, and i got to admit, we don't always do it very well. There's been some times that i stayed out on the couch longer than I should have before I finally went to bed and kind of hoping she was asleep, leaned over, patted her, and said, I'm sorry. But she was awake. We need to be angry. We can't help but be angry. Anger is what's referred to as a first-level emotion. It's an emotional state that varies in intensity from mild irritation to intense fury and rage. And, by the way, the intense forms are spoken of negatively in the Scripture. We're not to be wrathful. There is a difference. But anger can be a good thing. It can give you a way to express negative feelings, for example, or, or to motivate you to take action, to find solutions to problems. Remember, you can't eliminate anger. And it wouldn't be a good idea if you could. In spite of all your efforts, things are going to happen that will cause you to be angry and sometimes justifiable anger. Life can be filled with frustration and pain and loss and the unpredictable action of others. But, Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Controlling your angry responses can keep you from making you even more unhappy in the long run. Especially if we take care of them before the day ends. There have been so many times in my life, because I do have anger issues that I've worked on all of my life. There have been so many times that I have later said, I wish I hadn't have said that. I wish I hadn't have done that and have attempted to go back and, and right the situation. So what exactly did Jesus say in the sermon that related anger and murder? Here's our text for today. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if, so if, you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and the, put you in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said. Words that are familiar to many of us. And maybe, maybe they're too familiar because we often heard them taught in a, a pretty uniform manner. But the first thing I want to stress is that these six teachings are not, they are not antitheses. They are transforming initiatives. Again, I'm so thankful that I was able to under, uh, study under Glenn Stassen. Uh, yes, Jesus does begin by affirming the traditional teaching in the Old Testament. He supports the law in the Ten Commandments that tells us not to murder and tacitly He accepts the punishment. The judgment to which the murderer falls liable. Think about this for a second. Let's go to the end of Jesus' life, the cross. The end of His earthly life. He's hanging on the cross. On each side of Him are thieves. At first they're ridiculing Him also. But then one of the thieves says, wait a minute, this guy didn't do anything wrong. He takes a repentant attitude. And he asked Jesus to forgive him. What does Jesus say? This day, you'll be with me where? In paradise. Now, I hope I'm not being sacrilegious. I don't think I am. Don't we believe Jesus to be the Son of God? who was all-powerful, who could have done anything. He could have even come down from the cross Himself. Couldn't He? Yes. It took more love for Him to stay on the cross. Right? But He could have chosen to stay on the cross and He could have said to that guy, you know what? I, I, I forgive you and I'll see you today in paradise. Uh, but, you know, I'm not into this capital punishment stuff, so I'm going to zap you off the cross to some other area where nobody will know you and then you can go on living. He could have done that. But essentially, what he said is, I forgive you, God forgives you, today you'll be in paradise, but you still have to die for the crimes that you committed. Idealistic interpreters of this passage regarding murder and anger often say that the Old Testament focuses on outer action while Jesus corrects them by focusing on the inner attitudes. 
which is identified as anger. The implication is that teaches us, Jesus teaches us to never be angry. But uh, didn't Jesus get angry? And he wasn't a sinner. So being angry must not be being sinful. I mean, Mark 3, 5, it specifically says he was angered at the hardness of the heart for those who would not say it was okay for him to heal the man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath. John 11.33 at the grave of Lazarus quote, when Jesus saw her, that is Mary, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up with him, within him. And he was deeply troubled. Jesus affirms the Old Testament commandment not to murder. To do otherwise would be to abolish or annul the commandments, which Jesus said He did not come to do. So what is Jesus doing in this teaching? Well, in verse 22, Jesus is actually giving us a diagnosis of one of the vicious, vicious cycles that we find ourselves in. The cycle of anger and judgment. And there are two things that need to be pointed out that have to do with translation. First of all, the word translated is angry is really not an active verb. It's a participle. It's being angry. It's about ongoing anger, ongoing action, continuing in anger. And being angry does lead to judgment if we don't handle it properly before the end of the day. Secondly, the conjunction should not be translated but in our way of thinking. In that day of thinking, when they heard day, they didn't necessarily hear a contrasting statement. In fact, uh, the Orthodox Jewish scholar that I've been reading, Pincus Lapid, he actually affirms my friend Glenn Stassen's analysis when he says, on the linguistic side, let it first be emphasized that, but I say to you, focuses on a contrast that the Greek wording does not justify. In the gospel text, the little word day generally designates a coupling and not an opposition, but. Kind of like this. You have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I want you to hear another way of understanding this. If we need to use a contrast, but. Or it's, and I want to share with you what's going on. Because what he goes on to say is that the Pincus Lapid, what he goes on to say is that the moat between Jesus and his adversaries is artificially deepened with reference to these six so-called antitheses, which actually represent the ethical framework of the instruction of the Sermon on the Mount. With the best of will, however... I am unable to discover even a single antithesis in the sense of a counterclaim that would contradict a previously stated thesis. You see, as a wisdom teacher, 
Jesus is not just making general statements that are Proverbs. What we have in these teachings are real life examples. Real life examples of what that teaching looks like in practice. And in keeping with this line of thought, Jonathan Pennington agrees that we don't have antitheses, but what we have is exegesis. You have heard that it was said, do not murder. Now let me help you understand what they meant totally by that. And it doesn't include that we can't kill people. I mean, if Jesus was doing an antithesis, he'd say, well, in the Old Testament it says, you shall not murder, but I'm telling you it's okay to murder. That would be an antithesis. Now, on the back of your little study guide is a diagram. Each of these six teachings are going to first of all have a Torah, a law statement regarding traditional righteousness. And then Jesus is going to give an explanation of the true intent and the vicious cycles that we find ourselves in. And then thirdly will come the practical application in which we find all of the imperatives, the statements of command. Now go and do this. Again, we need to note that Jesus does condemn murder. But he goes on to say, and I say that harboring wrath in one's heart is also sinful and deserving of punishment. And he doesn't say that the punishment is bad. But Jesus doesn't leave us without a solution. If Jesus used the typical rabbinic three-pronged escalation that uh, lists increasingly more serious injuries to our brother, which it does, if you call him this, if you do this, if you do this, three, then why should we not expect a three-pronged address of the problem? So in the third and final section of each of these teachings, Jesus is going to provide practical ways for us to seek transformation and deliverance. And the first clue is the phrase, that's why I repeated it, so if, so if, there's no question that unresolved anger is unhealthy. In fact, let me tell you this. Detectives in our homicide units on the police department when I was there, if there was a homicide scene, do you know what detectives do? First of all, they isolate all of the family members. Isolate all the family members. Say, well, family needs to be together when there's a death. Well, family doesn't need to begin be together when there's a death because more often than not, the person who committed the murder is one of the family members. Because the opposite of feeling, pathos, is not hatred. The opposite of feeling is apathy, apathos. Not having any feeling at all. If you don't have any feeling, you don't murder anybody. Say, well, you know, so what if that's what he did? And you walk off. You've got to have that strong feeling to have the intensity to bring about murder. And the climax of Jesus' teaching is to find the brother or sister that has something against you and make peace. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11. 
Anger combined with unwillingness to make peace interferes with our relationship with our brothers and sisters and our relationship with God. So Jesus says when you're coming to worship and you're offering your gift before the altar and you remember that your brother or sister have something against you, get up, leave church, go take care of the problem, then come back to worship because otherwise you're wasting your time. He uses a second illustration of the urgency. If you're on your way to court with somebody, try to get it solved before you get to the courthouse. And Jesus uses a phrase, the last penny, the last codrantes. It's the second smallest coin known in the Roman Empire. One sixty-fourth of a denarius, and a denarius was the normal day's wages. So, one-eighth of one hour's pay. Now, I mentioned above that it's in this final section where Jesus provides all the directives. Not a single command appears in the first three verses where Jesus is citing the Torah, the law, and describing the vicious cycles that we find ourselves engaged in. And yet in these verses, 24 to 26, there are five commands. Leave, go, be reconciled, offer, come to terms, and make friends. So in terms of emphasis, no commands in the first two sections and yet five in the final section. In biblical teaching, with three parts, triads, the third part is always the climax. And the climax, the third part, has 84 words in the Greek, whereas the description of the vicious cycle only has 39. And if you think for a second at the story of Cain and Abel, when God tells Cain, if you do well, you'll be accepted. You must rule over it. Talking about that anger. Jesus is going one step further saying that what, we, that what, what that means is that we are to go and make peace. So where do we start? We're way past time. Here's my challenge. To follow the biblical plan that's already there for reconciliation. Matthew 18, 15-17 If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two other witnesses along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. It is a biblical plan for solving problems. When there are problems in the church, we need to follow these steps and we need to follow them in order. No one, and you can hear my anger, no one should hear about a problem that is going on between you and somebody else before you and that person have talked about it. Otherwise, you're just engaging in church gossip. And sometimes that takes the form of prayer requests, sadly. Yeah, did you hear about so-and-so? They blah, 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 blah. And, oh yeah, pray for them. 
No, it should start. Did you hear that so-and-so's having a problem? Well, if you didn't, they are. And God knows the problem. Be in prayer for them. Sometimes we feel like we just need to air all of everybody else's dirty laundry. And unfortunately, we haven't taken care of our own. If the individual work is not done first, there's likely going to be resistance and defensiveness in the presence of the whole group. And therefore, progress will be blocked. You have heard that it was said. And I say to you, we get ourselves caught up in, tra- in situations that lead right up to and include murder. But I say to you, go take care of things before it gets any worse. Let's pray. Father God, we come this morning to offer ourselves to you as sinners saved by grace. Help us to be willing to do things in the biblical pattern so that we can see the resolution that's needed and not suffer the damaging results of doing things wrongly, of repressing our angers, and not doing as you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is going to...